the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 80, April 1972 The sustaining force behind all authority and power is moral force. When the moral force decays, the social order decays. Men are governed by brute force only when they are ready to believe in the ideas governing that force. More than a few men regard any reliance on moral force with cynicism. It was Stalin who said with contempt, quote, How many divisions has the Pope? Unquote. Guns alone spelled power to him. Many leftists as well as conservatives nowadays believe that force and brute power will govern men and they alike despise religious faith as an invasion of the issues. Political pressure and military power are their essential trusts. The new left today, and such groups as the Weathermen, have a similar belief. Quote, direct action, unquote, really means that legal process and the battle of ideas are treated with contempt, and brute force is alone trusted to change things. In this, they are true sons of the current establishment, in that the political order relies increasingly on pressure, coercion, and direct action instead of ideas, due process, and legislation. Executive orders, a moratorium on legal process, and the bypassing of law constitute forms of direct action, as do bombs and assassination. Direct action techniques are admissions of moral bankruptcy. The old saying that the thing to do when you run out of ideas is to shout louder has more than a little truth to it. Stalin's direct action, as also Lenin's, was a result of moral bankruptcy. The Marxist dream called for the destruction of capitalism so that communism might flower. Instead, famine was the immediate result of collectivization. The greedy masses who had cooperated with revolution now found themselves the victims of it. Every kind of intellectual gymnastic was performed to rationalize the failure of the ideal order to materialize. War was declared against, quote, counter-revolution, unquote, and a bloodbath was stepped up, with the revolution devouring its own fathers and sons. By the time Stalin died, the belief in the Marxist hope was all but dead, and cynicism had replaced it. A Natalie Kuznetsov, in his foreword to Octobriana and the Russian Underground, declares that, quote, hidden behind the official fine words, Cynicism, both political and moral, 
has become the dominant feature of the average Soviet man who no longer believes either in God or the devil or Lenin or communism or in anything at all. His heart holds nothing but smoldering ruins. Unquote. The result, Kuznetsov points out, is a radical moral collapse among the people, in high places and low. Attempts to offer political salvation always leads to a decay of moral force because the state cannot provide men with a faith for living nor with moral character. The state itself must rely on the people for these things. The state is a mirror of the faith and hopes of the people, and it cannot generate in and of itself what its members lack. As a result, the religious and moral collapse of a people creates a crisis for the state. The moral emptiness of a people becomes the moral emptiness of the state. Most politics have become pragmatic and relativistic. Thus, in the United States, the solution to problems is increasingly based on such premises. As a result, its, quote, best, unquote, answer is always to buy off the troublemaker. There is no belief in a harmony of interest. The reverse of this is a philosophy of a conflict of interest. This often appears in speeches, but in practice. It is all too often neither the free market harmony of interest nor the Marxist conflict of interest which prevails. Rather, it is the philosophy of the bribe and payoff. Pay off foreign powers and give them what they want to win their support. Grant subsidies, favorable legislation, and payoffs to minor groups, capital, labor, agriculture, college students, senior citizens, and every strong protesting groups as a means of quietening protests. The answer is thus not a principle but a payoff. In this, the state mirrors its people who are themselves unprincipled. Parents, quote, buy off, unquote, their children instead of disciplining them. Money is spent as a means of winning the child's love and allegiance. The methodology of Dr. Spock's baby care has become the politics of a nation. This is not new, of course. It has happened again and again in civilization. When nations lose their moral force, they substitute for it something else as the rationale of their civilization, because man in no age has been able to live by bread alone. Very commonly, such a decaying civilization, having lost all faith in moral absolutes, turns to a non-religious source for its justification. Aesthetics becomes a substitute for ethics, beauty the replacement for morality. The classic example of this, under the influence of Buddhism, was ancient China. In the 13th century, Japan also turned to aesthetics for its faith. In such a culture, moral character is replaced by a subtle and refined appreciation for every nuance of beauty and taste. Men may be butchers and sadists, but they can talk learnedly of the finest details of aesthetics, of gourmet experiences, and of delicate variations of aesthetic taste. The Renaissance gives us many examples of such people. John Tiptoff, Earl of Worcester and Constable of England, earned the title of, quote, Butcher of England, unquote, in the 15th century. At the same time, he was a world traveler, a scholar, and a cultivated gentleman. He could weep over a torn manuscript and yet view cruelty and murder 
coldly. Significantly at the same time, the belief in sorcery and magic was strong. Men looked for power, and the occult thus attracted them. Since they sought unprincipled power, the occult was to their taste. Since aesthetics was concerned with good taste, not good morals, they could readily combine perversity and perversion with an emphasis on good taste. Aesthetics, however, when separated from ethics and theology, ceases to become a delight in beauty and becomes a refinement in bad taste, then perverted taste. Any analysis of avant-garde art, of pop art, primitivism, and every major movement of recent years makes clear very quickly that art is now a pursuit in large part of ugliness, but even more of shock and impact, an attempt at power through continually heightened perversity. Originally, this turning to the primitive had been based on philosophy derived from Rousseau, a trust in the primitive as the simple, virtuous, and healthy, as faith in the masses declined. This return to the primitive became perverse. It became a philosophy of negation, and art and politics became a negation of principle, law, morality, and above all else, God. Alfred Jerry in Ubu Roy Ubu in Chain has his actors appear on, quote, the field of Mars, unquote, and say, quote, we are free men, and here is our corporal. Hooray for liberty, liberty, liberty. We are free. Never forget that our duty is to be free. Walk a little slower or we'll arrive on time. Liberty is never arriving on time. Never, never. Let us have our liberty drill. Let us disobey altogether. One, two, three. You first, you second, you third. There's the difference. Every one of us marches in a different rhythm, even though it's more tiring. Let us disobey individually our free man's corporal. The corporal, right. Mayring commented on this, quote, Collective disobedience under orders from the corporal of liberty in the riot camp, that would be total freedom for humanity, the freedom of all with respect to each. The next step, after that kind of freedom was to press the muzzle of a revolver to one's temple, and that was the step Alfred Jerry took, unquote. Walter Merring, The Lost Library, page 94F, London, Secker and Warbully, 1951. The aesthetics which develops in a world of relativism is an aesthetics of destruction. In 1856, Walt Whitman gave the philosophy of an aesthetics of destruction in his poem, quote, Respondez, unquote, declaring. Respondez, respondez. Must we still go on with our affections and sneaking? Let me bring this to a close. I pronounce openly for a new distribution of roles. Let that which stood in front go behind, and let that which was behind advance to the front and speak. Let murders, bigots, fools, unclean persons offer new propositions. Let the old propositions be postponed. Let faces and theories be turned inside out. Let meanings be freely criminal as well as results. Let us all, without missing one, be exposed in public, naked, monthly, at the peril of our lives. Let our bodies be freely handled and examined by whosoever chooses. 
Let nothing but copies at second hand be permitted to exist upon the earth. Let the earth desert God, nor let there ever henceforth be mentioned the name of God. Let there be no God. Let the reformers descend from the stands where they are forever bawling. Let an idiot or an insane person appear on each of the stands. Let shadows be furnished with genitals. Let substances be deprived of their genitals. This description of total revolution is a description of our times. The aesthetics of violence believes in the cleansing power of violence and force. Thus a culture which denies faith and moral force turns to aesthetics and finally a justification of violence as a new moral force. Violence as the new moral force is then directed against other men. Leon Trotsky in Literature and Revolution declared that, quote, Our goal is the total recasting of man. Unquote. This total recasting requires total coercion and total power because man wants his world to change, not himself. Man wants the world to meet his needs, not he the standards or needs of the world. Man then becomes the subject of coercive action to recast him in terms of the state's plan for man. Andre Malraux in Man's Fate wrote that, quote, it is very rare for man to be able to endure his human condition. It is always necessary for men to intoxicate themselves. Unquote. Marx said that men found refuge in the opium of religion. Malraux called it intoxication. As Marine sarcastically observed, quote, It is obvious that so marvelously complicated a life factory as the modern state has become must naturally seize completely not only the means of production but the means for intoxication as well." Unquote. In terms of Malraux, man is deprived of his means of intoxication. In Whitman's language, he is stripped naked in order to be recast. In 1944, Werfel wrote, quote, Every one of us needs a reconnection, a religio in its etymological sense with an established entity, unquote. He saw the coming bankruptcy of modern man. Quote, modern man is loth to accept the truth that certain creative forces in him are bankrupt, that this great loss has left him a shivering beggar in spite of his strenuously built-up physique. On the contrary, he believes himself to be the possessor of a promissory note on happiness which one day will be redeemed when his political ersatz religion will have created the material prerequisite for it. Unquote. Franz Werfel, Between Heaven and Earth, pages 9, 21F, New York Philosophical Library, 1944. Men are now finding that they have no, quote, promissory note on happiness, unquote, and no political paradise around the corner of history. Instead, they are beginning to realize that their contempt of religious and moral force is leading them into the most fearful of all bondage, slavery to the state. Man has become the property of the state, the sheep of the state's pasture, kept for shearing and given no right of appeal against the supremacy of the state. By believing in nothing, man is becoming nothing. By granting creation no creator and no direction, and no transcendental meaning, man has deprived himself of meaning. 
By denying God and the moral force of God's Word, man has left himself a world in which apparently only brute force and coercion rule. But man cannot live by bread alone, and he cannot live under coercion alone. Man, having been created in God's image, requires meaning and purpose to live, and this meaning can only truly come from God. Werfel observed, quote, As intellectual beings we can as little conceive meaninglessness as a square circle or a bent straight line. Without an overmeaning, in example, without world conception, world creation, world direction, the universe would be meaningless and therefore inconceivable. Unquote. Page 126. The coercive power of statism is very much with us. It will become much worse before there is change. The hollow men of humanism can protest, write, and destroy, but they cannot supply that moral force which alone can restore meaning and direction to man and history. T.S. Eliot was right. The hollow men and their world can only end, and quote, not with a bang, but a whimper, unquote. This is not so with men of faith. W. Holler in The Rise of Puritanism observed that, quote, Men who have assurance that they are to inherit heaven have a way of presently taking possession of earth, unquote. Page 162. In one of his letters, Samuel Rutherford, 1600-1661, declared, quote, Duties are ours, events are the Lord's, unquote. Men who have God for their sovereign can neither believe that evil shall triumph, nor can they tolerate it. Their lives are governed by moral force, and they govern everything they can control with that same moral force. The world is full of wailing men who see the enormity of evil, but not the sovereignty of God over all things. It is impossible for man to triumph against God. The purpose of God is not the enthronement of evil, nor is it the counsel of the ungodly which shall prevail. The triumph of God and His cause is inescapable, and whether we see the triumph or not, we must never doubt that it will prevail. Samuel Rutherford wrote, quote, The thing which we mistake is the want of victory. We hold that to be the mark of one that hath no grace. Nay, say I, the want of fighting were a mark of no grace. Unquote. All too many who call themselves Christian lack this mark. There is no fight in them as they face evils and troubles, only a long whine. In 1641, Hansard Knollis, in the midst of troubles and war, summoned men to struggle unremittingly for God's new Jerusalem and to beseech God concerning it. Quote, it is the work of the day to give God no rest till He sets up Jerusalem as the praise of the whole world. Unquote. This is a religious conviction and moral force. Man was called to rule, not to be ruled, to have dominion, not to be a subject. Genesis 1, 26-28 Apart from God, this is impossible. Under God, man has a mandate to reconstruct all things and the power of God to do it. Chalcedon Report number 81, May 1972 Predestination is very much a political issue today and a very central one. The churches have little to say on the subject these days. They either do not believe in it or are often embarrassed by the entire question. 
Predestination is simply the doctrine of total law, total government, and total planning. The important question is not, do we believe in it, but rather, whose predestination do we believe in? The alternative to predestination is a universe of meaningless and brute factuality, a world of chance. Predestination goes by a number of other terms in its humanistic and anti-Christian versions. It is called scientific determinism, dialectical materialism, scientific socialist planning, and a number of other names. Modern humanistic predestination is total planning and controlled by the state and its elite planners. It has a concept of an electing decree, but not by God, but rather by man, statist man. Moreover, because predestination is an inescapable concept, as men have denied predestination by God, they have affirmed predestination by the state. Predestination is an unavoidable concept not only because it is a God-ordained category of thought, but also because the alternative to a purpose and plan is chance and meaninglessness, and man requires meaning. Without meaning and direction to life, man perishes. Today, in our existentialist age, seven-year-old boys are committing suicide. Man requires a meaning and a plan to life, an assured and certain direction. The problem enters in when he chooses to find that meaning and plan in man, or the state, rather than in God. Man is then courting the world of George Orwell's 1984. He is asking for totalitarian humanistic order as his preferred alternative to a totalitarian government by the sovereign God. The origins of our present crisis are important to understand. In pagan antiquity, religion was an aspect of political order. Man's basic hope was in political salvation. Man was regarded as a political animal, the creature of the state, and therefore entirely subject to the government and power of the state. With the coming of Christianity, a long battle began between statism and biblical faith. See R.J. Rushdoony, The Foundations of Social Order, Presbyterian and Reform Publishing Company, Nutley, New Jersey, 1968. Throughout the centuries, the predominance has gone back and forth, but in the now dying modern era, the age of the state, men have looked to the state rather than to God for their salvation. Previously, in Christian eras, men looked to the sovereign God for government and law. With the Enlightenment, however, predestination by God was replaced with predestination by, quote, nature, unquote. The idea that such a thing as, quote, nature, unquote, exists is, of course, a myth. Nature is a collective noun for a universe of particular facts. It is not nominalism to deny the reality of nature as a governing being or entity. Enlightenment thinkers, however, saw, quote, nature, unquote, as a governing, predestinating entity which so perfectly ordained all things that in the words of Alexander Pope in his essay on man, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see, all discord harmony not understood, a partial evil universal good, and spite of pride in erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. 
Pope and other Enlightenment thinkers clearly held to a doctrine of infallibility by, quote, nature, unquote, and the predestination of all things in terms of, quote, nature's, unquote, perfect and, quote, universal good, unquote. At the same time, they denied vehemently the sovereignty and predestination of God. When Darwin published his Origin of Species in 1859, this Enlightenment doctrine of nature rapidly crumbled. Darwin himself showed traces of the old belief, but the new view of nature which appeared in Darwin was one of blind, meaningless, directionless chance. Moreover, as Darwinism developed, more than a few thinkers drew the logical conclusion. Not only was life without meaning and purpose, but man and the universe were only accidents in a meaningless ocean of being. They were products, as Lucretius had ages before held, of the fortuitous concourse of atoms arising out of emptiness and destined to return to nothingness. Another logical conclusion followed. Since God was supposedly dead, and since the old idea of nature was a myth, if meaning and direction exist at all, man must supply them. Man must take control and issue his own law and predestinating plan against the hovering darkness of chaos. Man must make his future, creating, planning, and governing it as surely as he controls and governs a machine. Predestination by man was the answer to the now obsolete predestination by nature. The perverse and twisted mind of Karl Marx here revealed its caliber. Marx had earlier grasped, together with others, that the next step in humanism was predestination by man. He read that step back into nature after Hegel, seeing man and in particular scientific planning man as the incarnation of a struggling mind in the universe, as man's elite mind working out a plan of predestination to impose upon history and nature. The emerging force would incarnate itself in the communist world order. Marx realized that Darwin, by destroying the Enlightenment view of nature, had made scientific socialist predestination the next step in history. The publication and immediate acceptance of Darwin's thesis was thus held by both Marx and Engels as the assurance of their victory. Since their day, a third of the world has become Marxist and subscribes to their version of predestinarianism, or at least bows down before it. The rest of the world almost entirely follows other versions of the same humanistic predestinarianism, Fabian Socialism, democratic socialism, fascism, and like faiths. Predestination is thus very much an, a live issue. More than that, it is now a political-religious issue. Men daily look to the predestination of the state, and unplanned life is to them anathema. The gods of the state must govern all things. Two very popular and best-selling books have set forth this doctrine of radical humanistic predestination. Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, 1970, and John McHale's The Future of the Future, 1971. Both portray a future in which a scientific elite predestines all things. The future of the future is to be made by man. Man shall predestine all our tomorrows. An ominous cloud, however, appears in both books. Planners are always having trouble with man. 
A machine can be totally controlled. It is man's creation. A computer can be programmed to do exactly what the programmer requires within the limitations of the computer's ability. But man is God's creature, not man's. Man cannot be programmed in the radical and total way man wants. In every society, man is the stumbling block towards realizing the plan. Man still moves in terms of God's plan and purpose, not man's. In this respect, as far as humanistic planners go, B.F. Skinner in Beyond Freedom and Dignity, 1971, is still a conservative one. He still believes that by conditioning and or controls, whether by brain implants or other means is for the moment immaterial. Man can be controlled. Others are less hopeful, and they look for an artificial man to replace God's man in their humanistic earth or hell. Toffler tells us that humanoids, quote, carefully wired, unquote, robots, will begin to replace people, and we will be unable to, quote, determine whether the smiling, assured humanoid behind the airline reservation counter is a pretty girl or a carefully wired robot, unquote. He reports also that, quote, Professor Block at Cornell speculates that man-machine sexual relationships may not be too far distant, unquote page 211. President Nixon has established a National Goals Research Staff of scientific and other experts to plan, quote, the projection of social trends, unquote. All of this is a modern jargon for predestination. In this humanistic plan, man is increasingly obsolete. In God's plan, man is either a God-ordained heir of all creation, created to exercise dominion under God, or a reprobate and rebel. His every act is a part of a cosmic meaning. In man's idea of predestination, only a robot or an artificial man can meet the specifications. In various ways, man is beginning to recognize this. Among the first to see it were the disillusioned, humanistic, and rebellious students of the early 1960s. The motto of one of the earliest student demonstrations carried on badges and banners was, quote, Do not fold, staple, or mutilate, unquote. This was a bitter resentment against a controlled humanism which was trying to turn man himself into a machine. The revolt declined into sullen and meaningless protest and violence because the students had no answer to the question, quote, what is man, unquote. Their only answer to status predestination was to demand either more action from the state or to turn to a sterile anarchism. The students had sensed the issue, but they had not answered it. The liberals, conservatives, and Marxists still looked to the state and to control of the state and its machinery for their answer. A great hero of the Enlightenment radicals, as well as of the 20th century conservatives, was Cicero, a champion of salvation by the state. Cicero regarded religion as a convenient means of keeping the masses obedient. For him... Salvation was political and statist. He championed racial leveling, especially in his oration defending Lucius Balbus as a means of strengthening the power of the state. He spoke of Rome in religious terms and furthered the cult of the city of Rome. He called Rome, quote, the light of the world, unquote. But within a century, 
Jesus Christ answered Cicero and Rome, declaring, quote, I am the light of the world, unquote. John 8.12 Cicero saw the philosopher king as the earthly incarnation of the divine mind. He held Augustus as Savior, saying, quote, In him we place our hopes of liberty. From him we have already received salvation, unquote. In 61 B.C., Cicero, who knew more than a little about the God of Israel and the Old Testament Scriptures, rejected all of it as, quote, barbarian superstition, unquote. His hope was in politics and in political leaders, and he was glad to see Israel conquered and its ideas ostensibly defeated. But Cicero died at the hands of his political leaders, and Rome became not a savior but a corrupt empire. The Ciceros of our day may not do as well, and they have less excuse than Cicero to hope in political salvation and political predestination. In 1959, the late Wilhelm Rapke wrote, quote, The ultimate source of all mistakes in our dealings with communism is intellectual and moral. In fact, it is our inability or unwillingness to comprehend the full substance and nature of this conflict between communism and the free world, its tremendous implacability and deeply moral and intellectual implications. Again and again, we fall into the error of conceiving this conflict to be an old-fashioned diplomatic power struggle. In reality, it is a collision of two irreconcilable systems that are intellectually and morally diametrically opposed, unquote. Wilhelm Rapke, quote, How to Deal with the Communist, unquote, in The Individualist, January through February, 1963. Since then, the free world has moved closer to communism, and the basic cause of its decline has been its growing humanism, its preference for the predestination of man rather than of God. But here we can borrow the language of an eloquent champion of humanistic and status predestination, Chairman Mao Zedong. Mao is confident that all his enemies, domestic and foreign, are, quote, merely paper tigers, unquote. He is not impressed by the power of any nation in the world, because in terms of Marxist predestination, they are doomed, and they are therefore ultimately only, quote, paper tigers, unquote. But Mao is wrong. It is not Marx's plan which governs all men, nations, and history, but God's plan, for God only is absolute Lord and sovereign of the universe. Thus, for all their momentary power, it is Marx and Mao who are, quote, paper tigers, unquote, before God. We must see ourselves in all things as God ordains it. We are told emphatically, quote, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, unquote. Isaiah forty fifteen. It is God whom we must fear and rever, not man. It is God who shall create the future, and already has, and it is His purpose and plan we must serve, not His enemies. The Scriptures are an announcement to men on a battlefield of the certainty of God's victory, and it is a summons to prepare for the victory and to act on it. Those whom you fear you will bend before and serve. Quote, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Unquote. 
Proverbs 29:25. We have been called to victory. We must expect it, fight for it, and act on it. It is God's purpose for us. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his pain the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. 
Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.